It's Communion Sunday, and uh, I, I, I shared that over the last couple of weeks, um, the Lord's just been stirring my heart, and I, I, don't, um, I don't know how to say it any different. In fact, uh, Mariah said to me, you know, we're, uh, the fourth song this morning is probably going to leave you uh, crying over there, since every time I sing this song in Christ alone, you end up crying before you come to the pulpit. And sure enough, I was in tears over there, so I decided I couldn't even sing the last stanza, otherwise I'd be a mess. And, uh, but some of that is, there's a stirring in my heart in that I believe that God wants us to be prepared. Can I get an amen? Jesus Christ is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. And I want us all to be prepared for his imminent return. Eschatology is the study of end times things. If my eschatology is not right and Jesus is not coming for years, maybe tens and twenties and thirties and hundreds of years from today, I won't be disappointed that I was hoping that he'd come today. And I won't be disappointed if I lived with the expectation that he is coming. Right? Because with the expectation that he's coming today, it will also prompt me in my walk in the Lord not to be foolish in my conduct. Can I get an amen? Right? It kind of is a holding fast or that tension that might cause us to walk more of the straight and narrow. Not living with the idea, how close can I flirt with a line that's over here near sin, but rather, how can I flirt with a line that's right here, nearness to God, getting closer and closer and closer to God in my walk with him? Can I get an amen? And I think that tension can cause us to lean this way. Like, for instance, if you knew, if you knew Jesus was coming back next Friday at 12 o'clock, you might think in your mind, who do I need to share the gospel with because I want them to go to heaven too. I gotta get the message out, right? I think that's a beautiful tension. We have a mission. We have one mission from Jesus, right? And that is to evangelize the world and to share the gospel everywhere we go. We are Christ's ambassadors. And God is making his appeal through you and me, through you and me. Now, we are the ones who get distracted. Everybody knows God's not distracted, right? <laughs> we get distracted, and we get off mission often. And so recognizing that his imminent return could be very soon, it ought to help us become somewhat more myopic and about the mission, right? Okay, so those kind of thoughts in mind. We're in our series, King's Council. This is week five, and it is the conclusion of this mini-series, King's Council. And I thought it expedient, rather than to look at Hezekiah, a very good king in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, that we would rather look at our king, King Jesus, and what he had to say, some key things. And so uh, 
key things that our king, Jesus, said. So our title is Key Things from Our King. And so I want to start today with a portion of Scripture, and uh, we might have a little bit of spiritual Tourette's this morning in that we might bounce a little bit around, and I might not have all my thoughts congruently in place, but I'm going to do my best to convey what I believe the Spirit of God has laid on my heart. So Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 and 18 some key verses because Jesus is giving some information. He's giving us information, and I believe he wants us to hear the words in these verses. And so uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll look at verses 17 and 18. They should be on the screen. I didn't print them in my notes, so here I am, Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled." Key word, fulfilled. Key word, all, fulfilled. Key words, law and prophets. Sometimes when we think of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, oftentimes we think of the law portion of the commandments, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt, or thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And oftentimes, even when people come to Christianity or they're hearing Christianity for the first time, they're like, well, it just sounds like a bunch of rules of do not and do not and do and do. And so we don't necessarily think of the law as something that needs fulfilling. Right? We think of the prophets, prediction, fulfillment, kind of a Western mind way we think of things. But we don't always think of the law and also it's corresponding fulfilling, okay? And so I want us to think expandedly in this morning's message because we are ultimately, today is, I probably use the term prophecy update, but more than a prophecy update is an awareness update for you and me, okay? What I mean by that is, it's expedient for you and I to be aware of the seasons we are living in. Okay, what is the season we're living in? So, came to fulfill the law and the prophets, and until all is fulfilled, not a jot or tittle will be removed from the law. Jesus emphasizing both the law and the prophets. Now, if you've done study of end times things, uh, which, if you haven't, I want to encourage you to do so. It would be good for all of us to have at least an understanding and a framework of the different thoughts theologically on what end times are going to look like. You'll probably land your plane somewhere in terms of what's future. I believe in my own process of the text of Scripture that I've landed my plane in one of those theological places. Uh, 
with that, uh, the encouragement is that you would study. And as you study, you will probably discover that text such as Matthew chapter 24, uh, Luke chapter 21, Mark chapter 13. These are all portions of Scripture that have eschatological points, truths contained in them. Over time, because these particular portions of Scripture have similar or same verbiage in them, that they are describing parallelly, if that's a word, the same event or events. However, I think it's expedient for you and I, based on Matthew chapter 5, to let the text read as the text reads and be careful not to try and harmonize or over-harmonize these portions. Because, in fact, they may be describing, yes, a same event, but also may be overlaying and... We see, if we look at it straight on, we only see the one event, but if we turn it this way or we turn it sideways, we see that there could be multiple events that have similar things. Remember, I certainly hold and believe that we could bear this out, that God is a God of pattern in the Scripture. Can I get an amen? Right? The tabernacle was administrated to Moses by angels, and it was a replica, if you will, of the heavenly tabernacle. The tabernacle became the blueprint for the temple. You and I are now the temple of the Holy Ghost, and we also, in type, have the outer court, which is the body, the inner court, which would be the soul, and the holy of holies, which is man's spirit. We are the temple. And so there's this pattern that we see. God is a God of pattern, okay? And so that pattern, it might be what we call, uh, if you were in the uh, arena of optics, and you, anybody here have a telescope? Any telescope types? Yeah, I got a little telescope. You know, you're looking at the stars, stargazer at night, kind of fixing our eyes on the moon, or maybe you look at some stars. If you have a weaker telescope, you might see a bright star up in the sky and go, wow, that's a bright star. Only to discover that if you had a more powerful telescope and you zoomed in on that star, you'd discover that there are actually two stars, but from your position, you only see one, but they're slightly offset, and there's actually two. They actually look like the same thing, but there's more than one occurrence. And that is how pattern works oftentimes in Scripture, right? One, one scenario foreshadows another scenario. And so, for the purpose of time this morning, which I wish we had more time, I, I want to just put it out there with the Matthew 
the Luke and the Mark, you'll have to do your own research on this portion of Scripture. My encouragement is to be careful about over-harmonizing and maybe missing some of the language in that text, okay? So that's an assignment you get to do on your own. As we have more opportunity, we'll dive into some of those pieces. But suffice it to stay, um, I do want to let the text speak for itself. In that, let's look at Luke 21, verse 22, because again, this is going to be a portion of Scripture that focuses on fulfillment, okay? So if you look at this, Luke 21, and we'll go to verse 22 first. Luke 21, verse 22. It says... Let's begin in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. So again, all things that are written may be fulfilled. Law, prophets, all things. But woe to those who are pregnant in those days and who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem, listen, will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Begs the question, what are the times of the Gentiles, right? Well, there's probably varying degrees of belief on what the times of the Gentiles are. Uh, Paul, writing to the church in Rome in uh, the 11th chapter, verse 25, he uses a phrase, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. A similar statement, a similar uh, portion of Scripture. But the emphasis is, again, on the fulfilling, the things that are written, if you will, the law and the prophets. So here's what's amazing to me. The Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day, they had the law and the prophet. They were entrusted with all of the promises, all of the covenants, all of the counsel of God. They were entrusted. They are even known as the doctors of the law. And we see... Jesus, in his first advent, when he came, he has conversation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he actually chastises them. They came to him and they asked for a sign. Now, we have recorded for us in Matthew chapter 16, uh, flipping your Bibles back real quick to Matthew chapter 16, we'll read like verses 1 through 4, again it'll probably be on the screen behind me, but it says this, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now let me pause here for a moment. They're asking for a sign. 
we're all, we are already told that there are going to be signs, not only of his first coming, but there are signs of his second coming, the imminent return. So rather than maybe asking for signs, how about we learn and do a little research to find out what signs have already been given to us? That would be maybe helpful for us as well. And we can learn from these guys. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he left and he departed. So being able to discern what's going on at this level, but maybe missing some of the more important things like at a prophetic spiritual level. There were some things that they should have known. Do you remember that time that Jesus healed a blind man? And a whole stir came up about it. And they brought the blind man in and they interviewed him. And then, you know, they said, well, you know, what did Jesus do to you? And he said, well, he rubbed some clay in my eyes and I, I know I was blind and now I can see. And then they brought the parents or wanted to bring the parents and the parents were like, we don't even want to go in and talk to these guys. And so they brought the guy back and, you know, hey, we got to know. And they asked him, well, where did this Jesus come from? I think that's the right question. This guy who was healed, he says, this is funny to me. This guy healed my vision. I was born blind, and now I can see. And you don't even know where he came from. Even that guy was chastising them. Right? Do you remember at the advent of Christ when he was born in Bethlehem? You remember who came into the city of Jerusalem with a big entourage? The Magi, the kingmakers, and they're making their way into the city. What does the text tell us? The whole city of Jerusalem was in a stir. It wasn't just, you know, the three guys you put out on your mantle at Christmas time. Frankincense and myrrh, you know. It, no, it was an entourage. These, these are the Persians making their way in. And they're coming, with a, they're coming with some pomp and circumstance. And it's, a, it's like an army arriving. And so they were like, whoa, what's happening here? What did they ask? They asked the Pharisees, where is the king of the Jews to be born? What did they say? Immediately say, they said, Bethlehem. The distance from Jerusalem to Bethlehem is about six miles. Are you ready for this? That's about a one and a half hour walk. Those cats didn't go. No one went to check it out. Just the Persian Magi went and presented to Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus those gifts, declaring King of the Jews. It's, it's so strange to me that no one went. Even Pilate said, you know, where are you from? 
Where are you from? The one question that everybody should have been asking, because here's a guy who's clearly presenting himself as Messiah. They, the doctors of the law, know that Messiah is coming from Bethlehem. Why is it that they never even checked out the data? They assumed he's from Nazareth, right? And so there's all kinds of amazing stories to me in regards to what they didn't do. And Jesus is chastising them because there were some things they should have known, not only about the time, Anno Domini, the birth of Christ, but we are embarking now on the fulfillment of prophecy in the timeline that corresponds with the triumphal entry. And we don't have time this morning to go into that whole prophetic piece, but Daniel chapter 9 and all that transpired there, there was a timeline that kicked in. There was a timeline, and if they just paid attention to the timeline, they would have known that the advent of Messiah had already occurred, and they would have just sought to find him, but they didn't know it, and Jesus said to them, because, because you did not know this thy day, blindness has come upon you, because you did not know the day of visitation. They were chastised for not knowing something that there was information that they could have known and would have been able to understand the day that they were living in. Remember on that particular day, it's the triumphal entry, and on the triumphal entry, the people were taking off their cloaks, laying them in the road, cutting down palm branches, putting them on the street, waving the palm branches, declaring, Hosanna, blessed is the son of David, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you wonder what was going on that day, all you have to do is look at the Pharisees' reaction. They recognize, hey, these people are declaring, you're the son of David. You are Messiah. And so they came to Jesus and they said, you got to tell the people to stop. And he says, this day, this day, if the people stop, the rocks will cry out. Because this is the day that Daniel prophesied that Messiah would be revealed and it was a day they should have known. Again, there's a lot of information you can get and all the details with the triumphal entry. We've done many, many services on that. You can go back and you can re review those. But they are the revelation stuff that the Pharisees should have known. Why am I preemptively saying all of those things? Well, again, God has got a pattern. And you and I are also challenged to know the days that we live in. And so that's just a little preemptive. We can learn from the nation of Israel. We should be at least aware of the times that we are living in. And so we make statements like we are living in the last days. Have you heard those? Have you said those words? We believe those words. And we believe them for reason. For there are certain things in the text of both the Old Testament and the New Testament that tell us that we are living in last days. So let's turn our attention to a couple of these. And again, I'm going to say really two things. Uh, signs and then the things that are written in the Law and the Prophets, right? So there's some pieces associated with that. I'd like to talk this morning about the parable of the fig tree. 
Uh, but again, the service is not going to afford for that. So a little research on your own would be healthy. But I believe that the parable of the fig tree is like that star that looks bright up in the sky. I see it, and with my weak lens, I see one star. But if I get a lens with higher resolution, I see maybe a parallel event. In the parable of the fig tree, he said, this generation will not pass before these things happen. And the destruction of Israel, Jerusalem and the temple, not one stone being remaining on another, literally happened in 38 years from the time that Christ was crucified. So that generation saw it. In fact, the besieging of Jerusalem under Titus, that Roman, Roman uh, what do we call him, captain of the entire army, Jerusalem was besieged encircled about, exactly as Jesus said it, and 1.1 million Jews lost their lives in that battle, in that besieging. And history tells us that a drunken Roman soldier started a fire. The temple caught on fire, and because the temple under Herod's further construction from what Zerubbabel and Ezra had done earlier, the second temple, Herod had added to it, and he had overlaid so much of the exterior with gold so that even as the sun would rise, you couldn't look at the temple because of its brightness. The gold began to melt, and it melted between the stones, and so they were instructed, remove every stone all the way down, and to this very day, there's not a stone. We don't even know where the temple actually rested on the Temple Mount because that's how finished of a product they did to get the gold. It, but it's a parallel picture in that there's going to be a future temple and there are some things that are going to be transpiring associated with end times. And so this parable of the fig tree I believe because it talks about the rebudding of the fig tree, and in hermeneutics, we would understand the law first mentioned, fig tree is also a type of the nation Israel. Israel was once alive, and then it was dead. And the focus was from probably somewhere 605 B.C., 588 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar brought them in to captivity it became a time of the Gentiles. And we are still in the days of the Gentiles because the fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in. That's a little uh, epitaph for you and I to get busy about the gospel. Can I get an amen? So all that to say, uh, the parable of the fig tree is that it rebutted. It says, when you see the bud come know that its spring is near and Israel became a nation again or rebutted came back to life came back to birth which no nation in the history in the ethnos of any nation on the planet has ever been a nation then not a nation and then a reborn nation except for the nation of Israel and it happened in 1948 and in 1948 I believe that kicked in a parallel reality of this generation shall not pass until these things occur. 
And we, that would be an indicative statement or reason why we believe that we are living in the last days. Because 1948, some simple math, you'd realize, hey, we are like, you know, 73 years into this thing. How long is a generation? Right? That generation was 38 years, kind of paralleled the wilderness and the wandering in the wilderness. So I, I won't go into all those details just to, by way of simply saying and kind of wetting your whistle, we're living nearer to the end than we have even as of yesterday. Okay? So let me, let me give you two reasons Two reasons why I believe that the imminent return of Christ will follow those things that were written even in the law. There are given in the book of Leviticus seven feasts. They're called the feasts of the Lord and they're given to Israel and they on an annual basis, participate to this very day in those feasts. You're probably very familiar with them and their terminology. For instance, in the spring, there are three feasts in that festival. Passover, uh, first fruits, and unleavened bread. Three feasts. We won't go into the detail on what those are today. You'll have to do uh, another research. We've gone through those before. Uh, about 50 days later, exactly. Uh, the Feast of Weeks begins, or Pentecost. Here's the amazing thing. All of those spring feasts and the Feast of Pentecost, Christ fulfilled on the actual day of those feasts. So he fulfilled what was written in the law. There are three fall feasts which haven't been fulfilled, which point to his second coming. And that fall, or the, that fall festival or those three feasts generally correspond to our Gregorian calendar in the month of September and October. So some of the stirring in me, like last year, I believe Jesus was coming last year. Now, I don't say those things publicly, you know, and I know the scripture, Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour. But we can know the season, right? We can know the times. Every year around fall, in the beginning of fall, the closing of summer and the beginning of fall, I begin to think in my heart, is this the year? Is Jesus coming back? You see, this coming week, September 7th, will be Rosh Hashanah. It is the Feast of Trumpets. It's a preparation. It's a feast that is 10 days, and it's a preparation. Consecration. Consecrate yourselves unto the Lord, is what Israel was instructed. Prepare your hearts. It's a 10 days of repentance. 10 days of repentance. Let me just look. I might be having a grandbaby right now. Hold on, sorry. Oh, guy, that's not the text. <laughs> okay, you heard that live. It could be happening. Okay, anyway. 
preparing our hearts, being ready. Here's the question. If you knew Jesus was coming today, do you have some business that you need to take care of with the Lord? Are you ready to see Jesus face to face? Is there some undone business? Is there some repentance that needs to happen in your life? Like I have sin that I know of that I'm just not dealing with. The Spirit of God's been dealing with me about it, but I've been like, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear it. If you know it, today's the day to deal with it. Can I get an amen? I mean, we're going to be coming to the communion table in just a few moments. This is a perfect time to simply say, God, I am sorry I've turned a deaf ear to your voice and not repented. The trumpet is going to blast. Ten days of consecrated. Let's get ourselves ready. Yom Kippur is the next. So from Rosh Hashanah, you, including Rosh Hashanah, you count 10 days. So on the 16th of September is what we would know as the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. And that is a time where the priest on an annual basis would go into, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple once a year and he would make atonement for the sin of the nation of Israel. They'd tie a rope around his ankle, and he had, oftentimes there would be bells on his garment. If he wasn't making noise in there, <laughs> they'd give a little tug, and if there was no tug back, they'd pull. They'd do that just preparation, because if, if he wasn't ready to make atonement even for the nation, if he had his own that he had not atoned for, you know, made sacrifice for. And so a very big deal for the nation of Israel. Very, very big deal. And so Day of Atonement... And then, five days after the Day of Atonement, including, uh, including uh, Yom Kippur, this year will be September 20th, which begins Sukkot, the Feast of Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. And it lasts for seven days. And there's an eighth day... Uh, how do I say it? Uh, Shemini Atzerat. And it, it's, it's, the, it's the new beginning. It's a holy convocation. It's a celebration. And there is, there is an eighth day for us, so to speak. It is the new beginning that we're looking for. But we won't go into all those details. Here's the, here's the simplicity I want you to hear and see. All these other feasts have been fulfilled on their day. I believe that when Christ returns, he will likely fulfill on those days in their exactness in terms of the fall and those fall feasts. The scripture encourages us to lift, when we see these things, to lift up our eyes for redemption draws nigh. Some things are happening on a global scale. Some things are happening in a prophetic scale. And it's expedient for you and I to be aware Jesus could come very, very soon. And to be ready for the Lord. To be ready. So to make our accounts short with God, and if there are folks that we know we want, which is all of them, right, we want to come with us, we got to get busy about our Father's business. Can I get an amen? Right? You certainly have friends that don't know Christ. You want them to know Christ. No time like the present to begin sharing. If, 
if Jesus' return and the rapture of the church is a pre-tribulation rapture where the dead in Christ rise first and we who are alive and remain are caught up to meet the Lord in the air and thus we will be with the Lord forever, if that happens in the correspondence with the feast of Sukkot where we will be with the Lord for seven days or seven years and then we return and we reign with the Lord for a thousand years, hey, Daniel's 70th seven could be during that time we're celebrating in heaven could be the tribulation period down on earth. Revelation chapter six through Revelation chapter 19. Yikes. We don't want anyone we know to go through that. We don't want anyone we don't know to go through that. It means we gotta get busy. We gotta be busy about the Lord's work. So I know it's probably a little bit like a fire hose and again I said it might be some spiritual Tourette's this morning but... Um, so I said two reasons why I believe in the fall. And I gave you, I, I gave you the feasts. I want to I just bring us to the communion table with Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, Jesus invites Peter, James, and John to join him. He says this, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John uh, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus. Now, I'm going to pause there for a moment. Look this way. Jesus invites Peter, James, and John. Now, if you back up to verse 28 of chapter 16, and let's read this together, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Wait, what? Some of you that are right here, Jesus with Jesus at this time, in first century, will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming with the kingdom. Well, those guys are dead, aren't they? Aren't they? Yeah. And then you get to chapter 17, it says, and six days later, he took Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain, and there he was transfigured before them, and his face shone, and his clothes became like the light. And then Moses and Elijah show up. Moses died on planet Earth. Elijah didn't. Elijah was caught up. Jesus is in all his glory. Moses representing the dead in Christ. Elijah representing we who are alive and remain, which will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. It was a dress rehearsal. A dress rehearsal. The pattern. Seeing that, those three guys saw Christ coming with his kingdom. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Digest, you can put that in your notes if you have it. You can read that again. It's powerful. Dress rehearsal. They saw it in advance. Listen to what Peter says. It says, then Peter answered. You wonder if there was just an arbitrary question maybe put out there. <laughs> but Peter just speaks up because that's kind of what Peter does. Answers and says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Why in the world would Peter say that? There's only one time in a year where tabernacles, tents, are put up. And that's at the Feast of Tabernacles. So I believe this dress rehearsal is a picture telling us when these future events are going to be transpiring. It's a season, not a day, not an hour, but a timeline so that we can be ready. Like the Pharisees should have been ready on the day of their visitation, I believe that if we have a careful and clear understanding of what the text says, we can be more prepared than they were and that it's expedient for us to do so because others' lives are dependent upon you and me. Other people coming into the kingdom are dependent upon you and me. And there's no time like the present to get the message out. Those are the two thoughts I have. Well, certainly the two with the fall and his return sometime in the fall. So every fall, I, my, now he could come in the spring and he could come in the summer and he could come in the winter. I'm just saying I get geared up like, okay, Lord, is it now? We should be ready in season and out. Can I get an amen? Yeah. So the one piece, do we have some business with the Lord at the altar? I got some repentance. And the other piece is, who is on my five friend focus? Who is it that I am praying and believing for that God is going to use me and the Holy Spirit is going to prompt me where I can be sharing my faith and believing that God is going to bring these people into the kingdom? And then I, as I cross a name off because they've come into the kingdom, I want to see them get into discipleship, and I'm going to add another name. I'm going to add another name because God's got you and me as his ambassadors. I want to invite you to join, grab your five friend focus if you don't have one, and let the Spirit of God prompt you to put those names that you believe that you're supposed to be sharing Jesus with there. With that being said, I'm going to invite Mariah to come on up, and it's, uh, it's 1125. I still haven't got word. I'll just tell you we're having a baby today, I know. <laughs> Grandbaby. Woo! Yay. Cat's out of the bag. <laughs> we don't even know what's happening yet, but anyway, uh, we're going to come around the communion table, and so I'm going to invite uh, you to stand with me this morning, and I want to uh, always, as we approach the communion table, to approach the communion table in a, in a worthy manner that we would give proper attention and time to this, uh, because it is an opportunity for us to simply remember what Jesus has done for us. Can I get an Amen. Right. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God made him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus.
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? But thanks be to God. Though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life. If we confess with our mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Hallelujah. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When we come to the communion table, we are publicly announcing, publicly acknowledging that we are willful participants in the new covenant of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The atonement is no longer in the shedding of the blood of bulls and of rams, but Christ, once for all, has made atonement for us in the heavenly temple. He has gone into the Holy of Holies, and he has offered his blood there, and he has made atonement for the sin of the world. Now you and I, we need but simply apprehend that which Christ has apprehended for us, to be born-again believers. And communion is just that chance to say, thank you, Jesus. We're remembering what you've done, and it is because of what you've done that we have salvation. We have the gift of eternal life. Praise be to God. I invite you to stand. On the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, he was going to be having that last Passover meal with his disciples, a meal that he said that he had desired to have with them deeply. The Bible tells us that he took the bread, which I just, by way of confession for me, my bread is going to be better than your bread. It's all unleavened, but mine actually has substance. Yours does not. I apologize. COVID has forced us to go to this method. We normally use matzah, and everybody has matzah, but matzah is unleavened bread, and they make matzah the same way they have for decades, centuries. It is uh, both perforated and scored. I believe that when Jews partake of Passover, and as the host opens up that satin sash and pulls out a large piece of matzah, gives thanks and breaks the bread at the very beginning, and he takes half of it and he wraps it in a linen cloth and they go and they hide it. It is a picture of the broken body of Jesus, which was wrapped in linen and hidden for three days. And later in the meal, it will be found by the kids and they pull it out and it is quote-unquote, resurrected, the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. The scoring and the stripe, the scoring and the piercing are, I believe, reminders to those Jews. The scripture says they will look upon the one whom they have pierced, and for nearly 2,000 years or maybe 1,970 years or whatever the exact date is, they at Passover are in type, looking upon the one whom they have pierced. For Jesus is the bread of life, and this bread is without leaven, it is without sin, and it is a picture and a type. The, the scripture also tells us it is by his stripes we are healed. And those scores remind us of the stripes, Isaiah the prophet tells us. And so we hold this bread today, and Father, we remember that the plan of salvation came from the throne room. And we say thank you for your great plan of salvation. We ask God today that as we remember what Christ did for us, we simply say thank you, God, for your great salvation. Thank you, God, for your great salvation. I am a sinner, and you 
have atoned for my sin. You've made it possible for all of us to be rightly related to you. And so, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your willingness, and we thank you for your obedience. You came. You took on flesh, as we sang in that song earlier. You died upon the cross, and you took upon the sin of the world and made possible for us to be rightly related to you. So today, as we partake of this bread, we simply give you thanks, remembering what you have done for us. Let's partake of the bread together this morning. We hold the cup. And if you've been in one of our communion services, you know that we rehearse regularly the Seder meal and what the Seder meal is and that there is a common cup around the table and all who would partake in that Passover meal would at four different times drink from that cup. The text is very clear that it was after supper that Jesus took the cup. That is the third cup of the Seder meal and it is known as the cup of redemption. And Jesus, took the cup of redemption and said redemption is no longer in the blood of bulls and rams but it is in my blood which I will shed upon the cross at Calvary for you and the sin of the world and by partaking of this today we are declaring that I am trusting Jesus my trust and my hope is in the new covenant in the shed blood of Christ for my own atonement for me I need Jesus I need Jesus. And so we hold the cup of redemption and we give thanks to the Lord because he has made possible our redemption through the work of the cross that Jesus accomplished. So Father, today again, with great thanksgiving and Jesus with great thanksgiving and Holy Spirit, with great thanksgiving, we say thank you. Thank you for the atoning work. Thank you, Jesus, for your atoning work on quote unquote the day of atonement when you made atonement for the sin of the world, you made atonement for my sin that I might be able to be rightly related to my Father in heaven through your work and only your work. And so, Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you, God, for the cleansing of all unrighteousness that you do in our lives. We have been justified. You see us justified, never sinned. And so we are so grateful and thankful. And today, as we partake of this together, we make declaration to the world that we are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's partake together of the cup this morning. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Jesus is coming soon. Amen? Amen. Will you lead us in that chorus as a benediction? Have an amazing day in Jesus. And may God be glorified. The Lord bless you.